All right, Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Uh, if you are new or maybe you missed a week or two, you're like, where are we? We are in Mark 15, and Mark is the shortest gospel, and Mark takes six chapters to focus on the last seven days of Jesus' life. So Mark is really that compact, short gospel. He's trying to show you the power and the work of Jesus. There's not so much the teachings of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. It's more of, look who he is, look what he did, look what he did. now you decide. Who is he? So that's like Mark's pace. And he slows down to focus on just the last seven days of Jesus' life. And here in Mark 15, just to catch up to speed, uh, last week Steve taught on how just Jesus was standing before Pilate. And we looked at who really was on trial. Jesus was on trial, but in reality, Pilate was on trial. In reality, I'm on trial. You're on trial. What do we do with Jesus? What, how do we decide what we're going to do with Jesus? And we see that Pilate made a wrong choice. We see that he gave uh, Barabbas over to the people. And we see that he gave up Jesus to be crucified. And we saw really this exchange taking place, ultimately. You look at Barabbas, like we are the Barabbas. We are the ones who should have been punished. We're the ones who sh- we're, were found guilty, and yet Jesus took our place. And so here we are, Mark chapter 15, and we see just a lot of mockery, shame. We see just them belittling Jesus, spitting in the face of Jesus. Mark focuses less on the torture of Jesus and focuses more on the shame and mockery of Jesus in this time. And as we read this, I feel like you're going to feel that. I read this text several times. It's, it's weird to, to read this text so many times. I feel like in one, in one week. You know, I'm, I'm encouraged because sometimes a text like this is just reserved for Good Friday only. And let me just say this. We can study the cross all year long. It's not just a Good Friday message. This is something we, we should look at this all the time. I mean, this is the center of our faith. And so here's what I want to just point out. Um, as we got towards, the, as, as we are here in the end of Mark, I'm reminded of the beginning. So if you guys remember the beginning, Mark 1.1, do you guys remember how it began? Mark 1.1 says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here's what I want to point out. Mark starts off and says, this is the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And from verse 2 on, it's basically, he's basically unraveling the story of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Up until this point, no one has called Jesus this, the Son of God. So far in the gospel of Mark, no one has says Jesus is the Son of God until our text today. This is kind of the climax of our text. We're going to see a pagan, non-Jew, a Gentile, confess Jesus to be the Son of God. And this is really what Mark has been building up to. Saying, look at Jesus. Look what he said. Look what he did. Who is he? And then we're going to see an unbeliever go, truly this was the Son of God. And so Mark is building up to this point. And so like in any story, you kind of have that beginning. And, and I love how when Mark writes this, think about this in Jesus' day, they wouldn't know who Jesus was. They're, they're discovering it. Like this, they're seeing it firsthand. Who is this guy? What is he doing? Mark's like, Mark kind of gives us some insight. Hey, you know he's the son of God and you're going to see how he's the son of God right up until this point. And so this, this text to me is so critical. If you're looking, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. This is like the climax of the story, the, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. So if you remember, our first sermon ever was called The Greatest Story Ever Told. Here in our second to last sermon, it's going to be the greatest story ever told, the cross. Next week will be the greatest story ever told, the resurrection. And we're going to kind of see this at the beginning. Here we are at the climax with the crucifixion. Next week, the resurrection. And here's what I want to say. The cross, as you guys know, is just the centerpiece of Christianity. And really think about this. If you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, like what, do Christ- what are they about? We worship, we study, we read, we follow a crucified Messiah hanging next to two guilty criminals, bloody and bruised and spat at, stripped naked and bare. And how is it that today there's so many people following that message? I mean, if you really think about this message of Christianity, our King of kings and Lord of lords suffered and died innocently. 
And this message has been carried on and spread throughout cultures and civilizations and centuries. And it's like, what is so significant about a bloody Savior dying on a cross? And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at why does the cross matter? What, what, really hap- what really happened at the cross? What really took place at the cross? Why is there so much mockery? Why is Jesus abandoned at the cross? And I really think we learn so much about our hearts in this process and so much about the, the heart of God in this process. And so again, this is the centerpiece of what we believe. Now I'm saying all this because I, I, it's interesting again to me to think that Christianity is based upon a man who's bloodied and beaten and suffered and died, and yet we see this is a movement that has just reached all people. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great theologian in his day, he said this. He said, the preaching of the cross of Christ was the very center and heart of the message of the apostles, and there's nothing I know of that is more important than that every one of us should realize that this is still the heart and the center of the Christian message. If you go to a college where maybe they believe in Jesus to some extent, like he's a good man, good moral teacher, they'll study maybe the Sermon on the Mount and his Beatitudes, and they'll focus on the teachings of Jesus. Maybe you know Jesus as a healer. Maybe you know Jesus as a humble peasant. If you don't know Jesus, the Jesus that was displayed on the cross, then you don't know the real Jesus. We need to know his mission. He came to die. He's the only one I think who ever lived, you could say, in this way. He's like, hey guys, my purpose of being here is to die. Jesus' mission was accomplished through death. Most people try to accomplish their mission in life. He accomplishes mission in death. Over and over again, he goes, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And here's now where we see that. So I want to read this story. I want to read in verse 20, uh, all the way through verse 41. So I want you to see this as a whole. Remember last week, he stood before Pilate. He gave up Barabbas. Jesus is given over to be flogged or beaten or scourged, however you want to put it. And let's just look, re-look at verse 20. Verse 20. Remember, they, they put some crown of thorns on him. They put a purple robe on him. They're mocking him as a king. Verse 20 says this. And when they mocked Jesus, and just circle the word mocked, when they mocked Jesus, they took the purple off him, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and as, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Then they gave Jesus wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, or and when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. It's 9 a.m., an inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. This is, they're saying this is why he died, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with, with the scribes said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were, who were crucified with him, they also reviled him. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole, uh, over, over the whole and until the ninth hour, so from noon to three. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard it said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. 
Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite Jesus saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There are also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and, and of Joseph, and Salome, and who also followed Jesus and ministered to him when, the, when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Jesus, I just ask that um, this message, which we've called good, we've called this Good Friday, Lord, maybe we've heard it often. Let it be good to us again. God, this is great news. This just reveals the ugliness of man and just the beauty of you, Lord. And uh, God, we ask that you just speak, that you'd move. That we'd understand why you were mocked and ridiculed. Why you were abandoned. That we'd understand what really happened with the veil being torn. And a Gentile confessing you as the Son of God. Just speak to our hearts, Lord. Um... God, I pray that myself, I would not get cold to this text, get cold to this story. Lord, I ask that the fact that you embrace darkness, that it would just shine light into my life and everyone's life, God. Just do something new in our hearts. Let it be like we heard this for the first time this morning, we ask Jesus in your wonderful name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever um, heard or, or seen someone mock or belittle Jesus publicly. And I don't know if you've ever got that feeling where you just kind of cringe and it almost makes your blood boil. Where someone will say something about Jesus, and you're like, oh no. Like, did they really just say that? Um, when I was a senior in high school, I went to a, a Christian school. It's called Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Uh, my senior year, we had a Bible class called Apologetics, right? It's like how to defend your faith kind of a class. So my senior year, I'm in class. Our teacher says, hey guys, today I have a, have a friend who's an atheist. He's going to come in. He's going to share why he's an atheist. He's going to share what he believes. I'm going to ask that you just be respectful, that you just take notes, listen to him. Don't be rude. Just, just hear him out. And, and just give him time to talk and ask your questions when you feel need. So senior year, my class, Bible teacher says that. The atheist guy comes in. He comes in, and he, you know, he's a bald guy. He had these really exaggerated, like his eyebrows. He could just move really high, and he can move more. It was really cool. Um, he just walk around, and he just introduced himself, and he, he shared a story, and he shared his, who he is and why he's an atheist, and he gave reasons why he's an atheist. And kind of after a while, I started taking little jabs, you know, at Christians and, and those who believe in God. And at that point, you know, I'm like, I'm like 17. You're like, you know, you're, you're a punk kid. Don't really, you're just kind of getting mad. I'm like sitting in my seat, like my, my, you know, blood's starting to boil. Uh, every my class around me is like speaking up. Like, I have a question for you and like asking questions. I've tried to remain quiet for the first like 40 minutes. I know that might be hard to believe. Uh, but everyone's like asking him questions and, and they're kind of being obnoxious back. They were not being a good representation of, of a Christian back to him. Like, oh yeah, well why? And they're just going back. And it was kind of hard to watch. And, he kept, and then because of that, he was like taking more shots at Christians, right? And, and saying more things about God. And it was weird. I was like listening. And then he goes, he walks around. He's really quiet. He gets really quiet. And he makes his like eyebrow. And he goes, okay, so my name's Abraham. I uh, love God. I have a bracelet that says I'm a Christian. Look, I'm a Christian. Uh, and he started like going off and giving the, and I thought in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's just mocking Christians even more. And everyone's like hearing him giving us like example. And so I raised my hand and go, listen, man, you might not you know, believe what we believe, but you don't have to belittle us and mock us. And he goes, no, no, my name is Abraham and I'm a Christian and this means I'm a Christian. I'm like, what? Like he really was a Christian. For some reason he thought it was necessary to point out that his bracelet meant he's a Christian. That was not true. But he like, he goes, no, I'm actually a Christian. And all of us were like stunned. You know, we're like, wait, what? Like no one really got it. So we're like, wait, this whole time he's, you've been playing an atheist? He's like, yeah. So we're actually even more annoyed at this point. We wanted you to be a non-believer. You know, we're more upset. 
And, but it kind of made sense, like when he's taking little jabs at us and he's like sharing his testimony and he's just shared things that he's heard and people he's met with. And anyways, he was, was not a, or he was a Christian the whole time, but kind of lied to us. And for me, like it just shattered me. I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. I raised my hand and said, how dare you mock us? And he's like, I really am not. My name is really Abraham. I thought he just thrown out a fake Bible Christian name, like Abraham, like how dare he? I was like really mad. Um, and so it's over, but I, I don't know if you've ever actually been a, around someone who has at the workplace in public, a comedian on TV. I don't know if you just heard someone mock Jesus or belittle Jesus. I don't know if you heard someone say, well, God should have thought of that before he murdered his son. I don't know if you've ever heard someone just say something and, and you kind of go, oh my gosh. Like those words are going to come back and haunt them either now or later. And I don't know if you like felt that. I don't know if that was you. I don't know if you've ever proverbially spat in the face of God, mocked God, belittled God. I think many of us have. Many of us have maybe done that with our actions. I can't imagine doing that. Now, here's why I'm, I'm bringing this up. Imagine standing in the very presence of God himself and not proverbially spitting in his face, but literally spitting in his face. Imagine if God, the creator of the universe is right in front of you and you just spit on him. You strike him. You beat him. Imagine the mockery, taking jabs at him. You saved others. You can't save yourself. I mean, you can't imagine how cringeworthy this crucifixion scene really was. And not just because the pain and the torture, which of course, yes. Like we, we celebrate the cross. We talk about the cross. I can't imagine just the brutality of it not even recognizing that it is Jesus. Who is that? I can't even tell who it is. But it's the shame and mockery that they put on Jesus. And, and why? Guys, why did, he, why did he have to go through that? Why couldn't he have just died? Why to this extreme? Why with such just carelessness and recklessness, it seems like as people just project and hate him and spit on him, like why so much? And, and here's what I want to look at because I think this is, is necessary for us to see that it was all intentional. It was all designed by God this way. But Why? So as we look at this text, I, I don't know if you felt it as we read it, but there's just so much mockery, reviling. That's all like the words that are used of, of, of how they treated Jesus at this point. So here's what we're going to look at today specifically. We're going to look at, at how our Jesus was mocked throughout the cross, how our Jesus was abandoned on the cross, and how our Jesus was magnified because of the cross. And so as we look at this, I want you to see, I want you to feel firsthand, this is your Jesus, this is my Jesus who's mocked this way. This is our Jesus who is abandoned on the cross and not just abandoned by men, but by God himself. And then we're going to see how our Jesus was magnified ultimately because of the cross. And we got to see the beauty of this and the pain of this and just the ugliness of man and yet the beauty of God in this. And so let's actually read in verse 21. We're going to look at the first point. Our Jesus was mocked throughout the cross. Look at verse 21. It says, actually verse 20, because I want you to see the context. And when they had mocked Jesus, they took the purple off him put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear Jesus' cross. And they brought Jesus to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of skull, place of a skull. Then they gave him wine and mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what, what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. It's 9 a.m. And the description of his accusation was written, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and one, uh, the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves and the scribes said, he saved others himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who are crucified with him reviled him. 
I want you to just feel that mockery, that, that belittling, that, the way they, tr- every, everyone, the, what, those on the cross next to him, as Mark points out, the chief priests, the scribes, the Rome, I mean, everyone mocking and belittling him. Now, before we see that and before we talk, why, but why, but why, why to this extreme, why, why so painful? Before we even get to that, um, I want to talk about Simon, Simon the Cyrene. Now, who is Simon? Why is he there? Why is he helping carry the cross? What is, why is this important? Why is this mentioned here? Why are his kids' names mentioned here? What is this about? Let me explain, because Mark doesn't really include it. Remember, during this time, right before he carried his cross, uh, we know that Jesus, they put a bag over his head, and they just punched him blindly. They beat him with a bag over his head, didn't know where the punches were coming from, couldn't brace for it. He's beaten in the face. Then they go out and flog him. They tie his hands down to a post or a rock of some sort. They basically strip him bare, most likely. They strip him naked, exposing his back, his buttocks, his, his thighs, everything. And they whip him 39 times with something called a cat of nine tails. It's this leather straps with metal balls, with glass, with bone attached to it. I mean, it wasn't just a whipping. It's as they're whipping, they're pulling literally flesh off his back. And they're doing this. Most people, history will tell us, that many people did die just from the flogging alone. That just the loss of blood, it would expose organs. It was, it was horrific to watch. So our Jesus, who's a carpenter, who's strong, obviously, he's, he's been beaten in the face, he's been flogged. Now it's carry this uh, patibulum, this 100-pound beam, carry this to your place of death. And so he starts carrying it, and then we know from other gospels, he, he just falls. He can't, he can't carry it. He's weak. So they just pull a guy out of the crowd, Simon the Cyrenian. Now, now who is this guy? And imagine being this guy for a second, and, and your kids are with you, or you're just walking through the scenario, your family's with you to some extent. And like, hey, you, carry this cross. Now, I do want to point something out, which I find really interesting. Um, I think Mark notes him and his kids' names because I believe they were people in the early church that became leaders. Here's why. Romans 16, 13 says this. Greet Rufus. Not really probably a common name, maybe. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother. Personally, I and many Bible scholars will say that this is the same Rufus mentioned here in Mark. That later down the road, Rufus, who was either there himself watching this or he's just Ale- he's Simon's son, saw this and became a leader in the church and his mom. Here's what's interesting um, about this to me. Here's a guy who's walking just be brutally tortured and beaten. He has to carry the cross himself and then says, I still want to follow him. Even though I saw how terrible this, I still want to follow him. That Mark is not just throwing these names in for, for the sake of throwing these names in. It's like, hey, you want eyewitnesses who are there at the crucifixion scene? Why don't you ask Simon? We all know Simon. We all know Alexander and Rufus as kids. Oh, also their mom, his, his wife was there. You can talk to her. Greet her as well. The thought is that Simon was there and obviously they were there and they became believers after this point in time. And I do think that makes the, the most sense. And as you carry it out, that, that seems to be the case. But here, here's what's interesting. Uh, he's from this area of Northern Africa where there are many Jews. Why is Simon here? Remember, it's Passover. Why would Simon migrate from North Africa to Israel for Passover to atone for his sins? Do you understand that? Here's the point. Simon, a Jew, there migrating from Northern Africa, we know where he's from, goes to Israel to atone for his sins. He goes there to participate in Passover, and he participates in Passover probably like he never imagined. He's actually participating, participating with the true and only Passover lamb. And you want to think about how he's there to atone for his sins, and he's carrying this cross. He's carrying this cross, but he doesn't die. Jesus died. He knows he's guilty of sin. He knows he needs a sacrifice. That's why he's there for Passover. He knows he's guilty. He knows he needs a sacrifice. He's actually carrying the cross of Jesus, but then Jesus ends up dying. And I think this guy, Simon, speaks of all of us, that all of us need to take up our cross. All of us will follow Jesus bearing a cross. And ultimately, we see that Jesus died so we can live. Ultimately, we see that Jesus did take the cross on, even though Jesus was innocent and Simon was guilty. Think about that. Jesus is the innocent one. Simon is the guilty one. Who was crucified, though? Jesus the innocent. 
Simon got atonement for his sins in Israel at that point in time that he never probably would have imagined. He was there for the Passover to sacrifice the Passover lamb or one of the lambs, and, and he had his sins atoned for in probably a much greater way. And I love this. It talks about Alexander and Rufus and Rufus in Romans 16. And the idea to me is like, man, this not only changed his life, but his kid's life, his family's life. And if you've experienced an encounter of the gospel, maybe not like just out of left field, like where'd that come from? The thing I love about the gospel is it seems not to only impact you, but future generations to come that Simon and his kids' lives are changed from this point on, that, hey, we saw what it, we saw what it truly means to follow Jesus. We saw bloody and how, how you'll be treated as a follower, but we're still all in. And so I think Mark is mentioning all of this. It's just trying to paint a picture. Man, you know Simon? Yeah, he's still, he's still following. His kids are still following. But he, he's telling us this Jesus being flogged, beaten, he's tired, he's whipped, so he needs help at this point in time. And then I want you to see this, though. Right away, it just goes into crazy mockery. Cr- they're belittling him, claiming, hey, Jesus, you said you're going to destroy the temple, right? Jesus did not claim that. He said, destroy this temple, referring to his body. But like, you said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, and they're, they're, they're mocking him in this way. And why? Like, what is this all about? And here's what I want you to see. The mockery also was a part of God's plan. I mean, this was part of God's plan from the very beginning. There's a verse in Isaiah that is hard for me. And I would say, like, really, I don't, I'm going to read it quickly, but reread it and rethink through this and meditate on this. It's Isaiah chapter 52. Or sorry, Isaiah chapter 53. Um, it says, Yet I... Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Another translation says, yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. That this was God's plan all along. Not so much that Jesus was murdered, murdered as much as God sent his son. God, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why? So that we might live. But we see that this was God's divine appointment all along. And again, when you read Mark's gospel, you notice that he's pulling out from the Old Testament and saying, hey, this is fulfilling this, and hey, this is fulfilling this. I, I, I do want to point this out again. If I say God designed it, God ordained it, uh, we're going to see, and I'm only going to give you seven, <laughs> there's more, but there's seven verses specifically, and it's crazy beautiful. Jesus fulfills these seven Old Testament prophecies right here in Mark's gospel. And there's a little more, but I had to trim them down. All right, seven things that Jesus fulfills here. Because instead of walking through text all over again, just hear this. Number one, we see the first thing fulfilled in Scripture is Psalm 69. Uh, Psalm 69, it says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus said they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, the sour wine. Number two, the second prophecy fulfilled by Jesus that we see in the Old Testament. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22:18. It says about Jesus, And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. Number three, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. Mark points this out, Isaiah 53, 12. And it says, and with him they crucified two robbers. He's numbered with the transgressors. Number four, listen to this one, the mockery of Jesus. He says in Psalm 22, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It says about Jesus, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. And saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Fulfilling beautifully Psalm 22. Fifth thing we see is, it says in Psalm twenty-two sixteen, they pierced my hands and my feet. And obviously it says, and they crucified Jesus. It says, on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. Listen to this, my favorite in Amos. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like morning for an only sun. It's not a prophecy I hear necessarily talked about a lot. Unbelievable. I'll make the sun go down at noon 
and they're going to mourn as for an only son. And it says, in Mark 15, it says, And when the sixth hour had come, noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, until 3 p.m. And we know that the women at the cross are mourning as if they're mourning for an only son. Number seven, we see in Psalm 22, it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, quoting this perfectly, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taking them back to Psalm 22 in their mind. Here's what we got to see. This was a divine appointment from God. And not only just this, but it, even the, the, the extent of the mockery, how they're wagging their heads. God loves him. God should save him. You can save others. Can't you save yourself? I mean, to the extent of just like verbatim line by line of what they're saying against Jesus. And this is what God designed all along. And here's what I see. Listen, it's not just these guys. Please hear this. The mocking of these people reveal our hearts. The mocking of the crowd, the mocking of the religious people reveal our hearts towards God. Here's what I want you to see if you would write this down. We mock God when we don't like what he says. We mock God when we don't like what he says. I want you to think about ultimately why they're mocking him. They're saying, you claimed, they don't like the claims of Jesus. You claimed you could destroy the temple and rebuild it. You're claiming you're better than the temple. Hey, you claimed you're the king. You claimed you're the savior. Save yourself. Here's what happens so often today in 2018. We mock God. We don't like what he says. I don't like the claims of Jesus. We don't like the claims of Jesus. People don't like the claims of Jesus. How dare Jesus say he's the king? How dare, dare Jesus say he's the savior? How, how dare he act like he's better than, he knows what's best for me? That he's the one who can just make these crazy authoritative claims. How dare he do? And this is what we do. People still mock God. People still mock Jesus today because they don't like his claims. They don't, want, they don't like the idea that someone's over their life. We don't always like the idea that someone can tell us, hey, here's how to live, not live. Here's what to do. Here's, we don't like that. You see, we begin to mock God when he makes these, he's on the cross or saying, hey, you saved others. Can't you save yourself? And I want you to see it's still the claims of Jesus that offend people. By the way, like, think about this. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, love your neighbor, you know, th- this idea, that does not offend anyone. Like, yeah, I, I love the teachings of Jesus. Love your neighbor. That's great. You know, hey, go the extra mile. That's a good one. Like, hey, judge not lest you be judged, my favorite. Right? Like, we love the teachings of Jesus. What we don't like are the claims of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We don't like that. The world doesn't like that one. It's like, how dare he say he's this? He says he's the king. He says he's the savior. He says he's the only way. How dare he? And that's when we begin to mock. That's when we, we want to reject God at that point in time. And this is what's happening. They're crucifying for him his claims. You say they're the king of the Jews. Let's put that above his head, the king of the Jews. Remember how Pilate wrote it? I mean, you see Pilate's almost brokenness in some ways, but he goes, um, the king of the Jews. They say, no, right, he said, right that he said he was the king of Jews, whatever I've written, I've written. But even that was, in many ways, mockery, just the king of the Jews hanging over his head. They didn't like what he claimed. They didn't like what he said, and that's when we begin to mock God and reject God. And we have a decision to make just like the people. We either reject him, we either reject him completely, or we embrace him. They're, they're really not, by the way, if someone's ever like, I'm not really against God, I'm kind of, like, I'm not really for him, I'm not against him, that just can't exist. If you take the actual, te- like, the claims of Jesus and what he says, it should polarize you. It really should. Like, you're either for me or against me, Jesus said himself. You're either for me or against me. That's a very polarizing thing. You're either all in for Jesus or you're not. There's not this middle ground thing that people like, I'm not really against him, I'm not really for him. It's like you have to be. You then, then really don't have integrity enough to actually study what he said. You're either going to be completely for him or you're going to be completely against him. Those are really the options. And so we see that we mock God when we don't like what he says. Number two, we'll see this. We mock God when we don't understand his ways. We mock God when we don't understand his ways. Because here's what's interesting, and here's what's frustrating them. They didn't understand his ways. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him bring dead people back to life. And they're saying, you've saved others. You can't save yourself. This doesn't make sense to me. If you're truly the son of God, get down from the cross. 
And I want you to think about this. If this was like a Hollywood movie, right? Because every movie, like you almost seem like the, the protagonist, like the, the hero of the story. You kind of see him like, like about to die. You see him about to suffer. And you're like, oh no, it's in. It's about to end. And then what happens? I mean, if this was like a story from Hollywood, Jesus would just get down from the cross and like destroy the, all the bad people there, right? Like that would be Hollywood. Yes, he did it. He got down from the cross. But that is not the story here. The story here is, then this is what they claim. They said, if you truly are, get down so we might see and believe. The reality is, if he got down from the cost, they, they wouldn't have believed. They couldn't have believed. They couldn't have seen. They couldn't have believed. For them to believe, he had to stay up there. He said, you've saved others. Can you not save yourself? For him to save others, he had to not save himself. He had to not save himself in order to save us. So if, the, he actually, if Jesus actually did what they wanted him to do, we, none of us would have been saved. None of us would have seen, none of us would have believed. And here's the point. God does things the way I just don't get them. That victory comes through suffering. That the way Jesus defeated sin, hell, and death is dying. That God died. I mean, that's how God decides to make this plan. And I don't always get that. And people mock God for what he does. People go, why would God do it this way? I don't get why God does it. And that's when we begin to mock God, I think, in our hearts many times. Is God's not doing it the way I think he should have done it. And yet God has a way of doing things that victory does come through suffering. That, that we see Jesus win through defeat. And it's not always the way we would have done it, but it, it's so beautiful that God's like, I will, also, I will be humbled so you can be exalted. I'm not going to get down from the cross and then you, you would never know me. You'd never believe. You'd never be saved. Thank Jesus that he did stay on the cross. That it wasn't the nails that held him there. We know at any point in time he could have called a plethora of angels to come and save him. But Jesus, through his love and by his love, stayed up there. Even with people egging him on. Like, if that was me, and, I, and I'm Jesus, and I have all the power in the universe, and I'd be like, like, want me to come down from the cross? I'll come down from the cross. You know, like, but thank God it wasn't me, right? It wasn't you. It was Jesus. He's like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They know what they're saying. They know what they're doing. That victory is going to come through my death. And so he stays up there. So listen, the mockery here reveals our hearts towards God. We don't like what he says. We don't like what he does. But I can tell you, the mockery of God reveals God's heart. Look at Jesus' heart in the process. Notice as they're mockery, mocking him, how it reveals his heart how it reveals his gracious love, his patience. I mean, the mockery not only reveals our hearts, but it reveals the heart of God. In Isaiah chapter 50, listen, verse 6, Jesus, it says this, Isaiah, I almost said Jesus said, but basically Jesus said it. He says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my, uh, the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. In Isaiah 53, 3, it says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The point is, Jesus willingly died. Jesus willingly went to the cross. Jesus willingly took this on. It reveals his heart for us. That even when man spat in the face of God, he's like, I'm going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm still going to die for you. And still today, even when we spit in the face of God, he's like, I still love you. I'm still going to be with you. I'm still, I still died for you. My blood is still there for you. I mean, it reveals God's heart in this process, that Jesus was stripped naked so that you and I could be clothed. John Calvin said it this way. I thought it was beautiful. He says, the gospel, listen, the gospels portray the Son of God as stripped of his clothes that we may know the wealth gained for us by this nakedness. For it shall dress us in God's sight. God willed his Son to be stripped that we should appear freely with the angels in the garments of his righteousness and fullness of all good things. Why, so, like, why was he so mocked, stripped naked, and beaten and spat upon so that you and I wouldn't have to be? So that you and I could be further clothed. That we'd actually be, be, be clothed, as Isaiah 61 says, with his righteousness. He was stripped naked so you and I could put on his righteousness. And this is what he's trying to paint for us. The mockery of the cross was all ordained by God. 
It was all specifically ordained by God that he was mocked and belittled to this, to this way so we could just see the ugliness of man and we could also see the beauty of Jesus at the same moment. And now we're going to see this. Number two, we're going to see our Savior was abandoned on the cross. Our Savior was abandoned on the cross. Look at verse 33. Verse 33, it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole and until the ninth hour. And at, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge with, full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. It's really hard for me to understand the one who is self-existent and eternal and who, the one who created life experienced death. Like, please think about this. Jesus created all life and yet put himself into a place where he could experience death firsthand. Death was never the original plan of God. Death was not God's will for us. God's will for us that we'd walk and, and talk and enjoy him in paradise, that we'd know him. And, and in God's love and in God's providence, he says, I'm going to give you an option. If you don't want to choose me or follow me, you can eat this tree. And the, the day you eat this tree, it literally says in Hebrew, you will die, die. It says it twice. You will surely die. You will die, die. You will physically die. You will spiritually die. This is not God's will. This is what God gave for man, to have an option, to choose love, to choose him. And we see that God who is self-existent, God who's eternal, God who does not need to experience death, put on flesh so he could experience death. I don't, I really still don't get that ever. I will never get that, that God died. God died. God became a man, which I don't get. He became to the point where he could die. He took on human flesh, and that flesh died. And so Jesus took on death. And I want you to hear this. At noon... And I want you to imagine this too, as Amos 8 prophesied what happened. At noon, it goes supernaturally dark. He's hanging there for three hours. By the third hour, it just goes dark. Supernaturally dark. And the darkness is not, it's literal, like a literal darkness, but obviously God is communicating something through that darkness. God is showing us that the sins of the world, that sin that separates us from God, is just placed on his son. And I want you to think about this, by the way. Um, in the book of Exodus, when God said, hey, Moses, go get my people out of slavery. Go get them out of Egypt. And he goes, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And he's like, ah, no. He's like, okay, if you don't, there's going to be some consequences. There's going to be judgment. And if you guys remember, there's 10 judgments, right? Now, just to like kind of fast forward, uh, the ninth judgment upon Israel or upon Egypt, the ninth judgment was just darkness for three days. For three days, there was darkness. And think about that. I mean, think about being in dark for three days. I've read stories of people who've made trips like Antarctica and these guys who like, talk about their expeditions and all that they did. It's interesting. They say the worst part about these trips is not the cold. It was not just being lonely. The worst part was just being in darkness for months. We were in darkness for months. That was the absolute worst. People lost their mind on the boats because they were just in darkness. One of the plagues upon Egypt was just darkness for three days. And what was the plague right after that? The death of the firstborn son. And this is what's happening at the cross is God is reenacting judgment. God is saying there's going to be darkness and then the death of the firstborn son. And there's a side of this where on the cross, Jesus is just taking on the judgment and wrath of God. That's what we have to see. Whether it's through the 10 plagues, whether it's just in general. Think about the earth in, in Genesis 1. The idea was we were without form and void. It was dark, you could say. And in a sense, it's the creator's being uncreated. The creation's being uncreated back to darkness the way it was. There's darkness on the land for three hours. And at that very point in time, what's happening? Jesus is absorbing the wrath and judgment of God. Darkness. When you read about hell, 
Hell does describe itself as flames that continually burn and so on, but one of the descriptions is just darkness, outer darkness, outer darkness. And this is what Jesus is taking on, is hell. Jesus is taking on the very wrath of God for you and I. And this is something I don't understand, that God at a point in time was separated from God, and this was the most painful thing for Jesus. Because Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus, for a moment of time, because of the sin of the world being placed on him, was abandoned, you could say. Forsaken is the word he uses by God. Because our sin, which separates us from God, was placed on Jesus. So what happened to Jesus? He was separated from God the Father. And the Trinity, which is something we're going to talk about when we get to the Holy Spirit series. When you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then before the creation of the world, God existed. And within the Trinity, there was perfect love and communion and relationship that God the Father, God the Son, there was love and community and relationship. And then at the moment at the cross, which has never happened before, that was just stopped because the sin of the world was placed on him. And the hell and the wrath of God was placed on Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus embraced the darkness so you and I would not have to. Jesus embraced the darkness and took on the darkness so we could experience his light, so we could walk in light. I don't have to walk in darkness. Jesus took on the darkness. We can now walk in light because Jesus taking on darkness dispels the darkness from our lives. Amen? Jesus cries out what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First time we see Jesus refer to God as God. (laughs) He's always said, my Father, Father, Father. This time he goes, God. Because at that point in time, the relationship dynamic has completely changed. He's going, God, why have you forsaken me? If you're a Christian too, this should also bring you comfort for many reasons. It's crazy to think in this time, listen, in a time of suffering, Jesus also asks why. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Jesus is suffering and goes, why God? Why have you, he's asking why during suffering. Can I tell you, I I really can't answer when when Christians suffer, like, why am I going through this? I, I don't know. Jesus asks why. Jesus goes, why am I suffering? But I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God does not love you. You see, it means that God loves you. I can, I can tell you that at least. I can tell you that Jesus was forsaken and abandoned so you and I would never have to be. I don't know why you're going through it, but I can tell you that he will not leave you. He will not forsake you because he already was forsaken so you and I could be brought in. That Jesus was abandoned so you and I would never have to be. We can't really answer why, but we can say, hey, I, I can tell you what it's not. You walking through suffering does not mean God does not love you. His own son suffered. His own suffered died. His own son died. I can tell you it means he loves you. I don't understand why, but I can tell you what it's not. And so we see Jesus walking through this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, I don't know if I'll fully grasp this idea that God being separated from God for a moment of time because of the sin in the world. And here's what we got to see. Jesus took on the wrath of God for me and for you. That was my sins he was paying for. Let's just, let's just talk about, that's my sins. That's my junk. That's my issue. That's all of that placed on Jesus so that I can be reconciled to God. That is your sin placed on Jesus so you and I can be reconciled to God. I mean, Jesus absorbed the very wrath of God so you and I wouldn't have to. So why? Why not believe in Jesus? Why not confess your sins? Here's the idea. God's not going to punish sin twice. And he punished his son, Jesus, for our sin so that you and I wouldn't have to. And I'd say this. Listen, confess your sin. Make it known. Talk, like, tell God, God, I'm a sinner. I, you died for that sin. I believe that. I receive that. Just like, just like in the Old Testament, you would go and bring that sacrifice and lay your hands on that sheep's head and confess your sins, just like you would do that. And as if his, your sins were being proverbially transferred over to that lamb, that's what you're doing with Jesus in a sense. You're saying, Jesus, you're that sacrifice. You're the lamb. You took, my sin of the, you took all the sin of the world. You took my sin specifically. Confess it. God poured out his wrath on Jesus. Embrace that. Love that. What does 1 Corinthians 15 say? Paul says, this is the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to scriptures. And he rose again according to scriptures. Jesus died, what does it say? For our sins. For our sins. Our sins have been paid for. 
He was forsaken so he wouldn't have to be. And can I just bring this up because sometimes I feel like this can be almost like misunderstood. Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but we got to see he died because of our sins. Sometimes the thing that can be frustrating is almost like you can hear the gospel being communicated as Jesus died for you and me because we're so great. Like he, he just, because you and I are so awesome, he came to die for us. In reality, Jesus died for our sins because of our sins. He died because of our sins, not just for our sins, but because of them. Not because we're so great, but because we needed saving. Because we needed rescuing. Because there's a sense of like pitifulness. He died because of our sins. Like I actually, it's not that you're so great, it's that your sins have separated you from God. I have to die because of your sin. And so there's a side of ownership that I think sometimes can be lost when we think of the cross. Like I need to understand, I need to own this me. Why did Jesus die? Because of me. Because of my sin. It wasn't some Roman, it wasn't some Jewish people. It was Jesus died because of my sin. Like, there's this personal ownership in this. That you and I are guilty for the murder of God. And we have to see this. And can I tell you, he did it willingly. He did it lovingly. He did. I, I love Hebrews 12. It says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did he endure this? The joy that was set before him? I believe that obviously that's reconciliation with us, with God. To say, hey, I know that if I go through this, I will be again with my father and I'll be with those, all the people I redeemed. The joy of being with you in heaven is why he faced this, why he went through this, why he didn't get down from the cross. He could have saved himself and in the process not saved us, but instead he didn't save himself so we could be saved. Jesus, Jesus was abandoned, so you and I would never have to be, amen? And not only that, but we see an amazing thing happening, literally, and something spiritually at the cross. And we see that Jesus, listen, our Jesus was magnified by the cross. Our Jesus was magnified by the cross. Why? Look at verse uh, 38. It says, so he breathed, he breathed his last, verse 38. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. What I want you to see and what I need to see is literally, there's something that took place when Jesus died. In the temple, there's this curtain that separated what we'd call the holy place from the holy of holies that was writ, it was rent, it was torn apart from top to bottom. Now, please hear this. If you study the temple, read about this in Leviticus, the temple veil was very thick, a very thick veil. Some people thought it'd be like soundproof. It was so thick. So there's this temple veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. If you're like, what's the holy of holies? Maybe you're like, I've seen Indiana Jones. I kind of know. Remember, behind the holy of holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant, right? And in a sense, that was where God met with man once a year. There's this idea that in the temple, there's the holy place where you had the table of showbread and the candlestick, and, and you have this veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, and that essentially is the dwelling place of God. That's where one man, the high priest, one day a year on Yom Kippur could walk behind the veil and splash blood on this mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, essentially, and one man, one day a year, could enter, in a sense, into the presence of God, and what is God saying? That veil is rent that veil is torn. It's not one man, it's not the holiest man on the holiest day of the year. It's anyone at any time can come and have access to the presence of God. The fact that Mark says it's from top to bottom, what is he trying to say? God did it. God is tearing down this veil. What does that mean? It means the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was complete and perfect, lacking nothing, that we now have complete access to God, that we can have connection to God. It's not just one person one day a year. It's saying, come to me, come boldly to my throne room of grace where you can find mercy and help in time of need. And God is saying, come, it's open, it's available. Take advantage of it. Walk in. It's complete, it's perfect, lacking nothing, you and I can come in. And, and I love that Jesus, 
is that high priest. He's that lamb. He's the temple. He's the curtain. He's the veil. He's every, everything speaks of Jesus. And you're like, what are you talking about, Josiah? There's a verse in Hebrews 10 that, honestly, whenever I read it, it blows my mind because I want you to think through what he says. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, listen to this. The author writes, having boldness, listen, in light of this truth, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Okay, please think through this. We would say, well, the veil was torn, therefore I have access to God. The author is saying, no, his flesh was torn, therefore you have access to God. The veil was really a picture of his flesh. The veil that is his flesh. Because his flesh was torn apart, you and I have access to God the Father. Because Jesus, we would say, yeah, the veil is torn apart, we have access to God. Even better, his flesh was torn apart. That's why we have access to God. Through the veil that is his flesh. The veil in the temple was really speaking of Jesus' flesh. This will be torn apart one day. The veil will be torn apart. His flesh will be torn apart. Why? So we can have access to God. There's one mediator between, the, the, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus Christ. We have access to God because Jesus' flesh was rent. Amen? He's saying, now come boldly. You have access. And you know what's really cool about this thought? The first person to walk behind the veil into the presence of God, you could say, was the centurion. The veil's rent. The veil's torn. Here's a pagan... <laughs> army soldier, murderer, who walks in and says, this is the son of God. Here's what's interesting to me. I, I really haven't seen, I haven't been in the room where someone has like literally died at that moment. I haven't, I haven't been around that. We live in a culture where we don't, not a lot of people experience that all the time. Maybe you have to some extent. I want to understand, here's a guy who saw death all the time. Here's a centurion. Here's a ruler of a an, of an, of hundred men. I mean, here's a guy who had, who, who's seen death firsthand. He's seen limbs fall off. He's been in war. He's been in battle. He's not a centurion for just being, for doing nothing. He's probably done a lot to get there. He's probably done a lot of bad things to get there in many ways. And here's this guy who's seen death over and over again, but for some reason, the death of Jesus stops him. It's like, why, why Jesus' death? What, what, what was it? Was it just the fact that he was calm? Like, what, what was it? And I still don't know. There's like a mystery of that to me. But he sees him breathe his last, and he sees the way Jesus died. He sees the darkness for three hours, and he goes, Truly, this man was the son of God. And Mark, and please hear this, Mark who starts off with Mark 1.1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark who starts off with that, basically climaxes with the centurion, repeating what Mark said, this is the son of God. Like so far in the story, no one has said that Jesus is the son of God. That's not, those words have not been communicated again until here with the centurion, this was the son of God. It's almost as if the veil is torn and the first person to walk in to have access to God, it's like, this is it, it's the centurion. Jesus is the son of God. Look at him. It's just great confession of Jesus because he's seen something about Jesus. And I'll say this, look at Jesus. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men, all people to myself. I would say, look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at this power under control. Look at this sacrifice that, that doesn't make sense to, to the, the human mind. Look at the self-control in this process. Look at, look at what Jesus gave up. Look what Jesus took on for us. And this guy sees all this and goes, truly, this was the son of God. This is not just a mere man. This is something different. And listen, all of us have the same opportunity to look at the same Jesus and make a decision. And have you said yet those words, truly this is the Son of God? That I can no longer just be kind of iffy about he's either fully God in the flesh or he's not. He either took upon the sin of the world or he didn't. So we have to make the same sort of confession to some extent. He is or, he, or he's not. And this guy walks in and says he was, truly he was the Son of God. And this great confession is made. And Mark, who told us this in the very beginning, goes exactly this is what I've been looking to, this is what I've been pointing to, the next person is going to say, this is this man. See, we, we have to see this. Jesus on the cross, and I think that what's confusing is this. Um, 
I've heard people say, you have no idea the disgusting acts I've done or how far I've gone. And I've done that while going to church and I've done that while knowing these things. The centurion story tells me that it doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how far you've gone, this guy's a murderer. Doesn't matter those things. I mean, th- this story tells me that anyone and everyone has access to God. That because his flesh was torn, you and I have access to God. Doesn't matter what you think you've done. I've done too much. I've gone too far. Here's a guy who, who, who gets it and goes right in. You see, again, because the gospel's not about subtracting things out of your life. Stop doing this and then you can believe. The gospel's not about adding things to your life. Start doing these things and then you're truly a Christian. The gospel's not subtraction or addition. It's substitution. The gospel is Jesus was your substitute. He took your place. It's not what you can get rid of. It's not what you can add on. It's that, you know that Jesus was just simply your substitute? He took on the wrath of God. He took your place. He took on the sin of the world. He absorbed all of that so you could have his righteous life. He gave up his life so we could live. Jesus died the death we should have died, and he gave us the life that we should have lived. Like, he gave us all just free by his grace. And this guy goes, this guy's different. He's the son of God. And this great confession is made. And I'd say, listen, make that confession if you haven't. Sooner or later, you have to do something with Jesus, as, as even Steve talked about last week. There has to, you may have been around the church for weeks or months and like, eh, I don't know. There has to be some sort of conclusion. Either you hate him and say, no, this is, this is a maniac and all these people are just following a crazy guy or you say, no, truly this was the son of God. I've never seen someone respond this way. And we see such unique humility and grace. Why is this good news? Because you and I who are dead in sin, God has made alive. You know, Leviticus 17.11 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So throughout every culture, every time, there's been this idea of there's a God, I must cut myself to be right with God. There's a God, I must kill that thing to be, and God's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to be the thing that bleeds. I'm going to be the thing that suffers and dies so that you can have access to me. See, the, the wages of sin is death. My sin, I deserve death. Things I've done, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. But Jesus paid for the wages of sin. It's now, now it's not something I earn. I don't, I don't earn. I get a gift of salvation found in Jesus. Amen? Listen, I just want to spend some time. We're going to end with just worshiping and praising God and just looking to him and saying, thank you, Jesus, that you were mocked and belittled and that you were abandoned so I could be brought near, so I could be brought to you. Thank you for the fact that, Jesus, you, because your flesh was torn apart, I now have access to God. Not just because the veil was torn apart, but because your flesh was torn apart, I now have access to you. And I just want to spend some time in prayer and just thanking Jesus for that. Can we do that? Let's just pray. Jesus, um, we don't know what to do other than to come to you and say, I am guilty. God, I, Josiah, I am guilty. I have sinned so much. And Jesus, we thank you that your, your blood, by your stripes we are healed. That Jesus, your blood has caused us to be forgiven and freed. And Jesus, I just ask for everyone in this room, let this message never get old. Let us never get tired of it. Let us always be good news. It's painful news as well. God, the the heart of man is ugly. My heart is ugly. I, I mock you many times in my heart when you don't do what I want you to do or when you say things that I don't like. And Jesus, we just thank you for your heart in the process that you just took it on. You embraced it. God, I just pray for everyone in this room, Jesus. I don't, I don't know where they're at. I don't know what they're thinking or feeling, but Jesus, let them know they are loved. The one conclusion we know we, we can't make is that we're not loved, God, that we are so loved. The fact that those are suffering in this room right now, suffering greatly and they don't get it and they cry out why, they can know that they are loved, that our God knows it's like to suffer and bleed and die. And we just thank you, God. 
We ask that the message of the cross, again, would not be old and not be foolishness to us, but it'd just be the power of God to those who are being saved. That this is good news. This is wonderful news. Jesus, let us now rejoice. Let us sing. Let us celebrate. Death has been defeated. Our sins have been paid for. The veil has been torn apart because of you, Jesus. So we thank you now. We praise you now in your name. Amen. Let's just stand and we'll close with worship.